Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are continuing in Matthew We are in chapter 18, and I would like to start this morning by waxing theological for a few moments, and then we will tie that into the message that's before us, because the subject at the moment has been, uh, how do you deal with a brother who is caught in a sin, and then forgiveness, And we're going to talk about the question, how often should we forgive? But this idea of sin and forgiveness is one of the primary threads that runs all the way through the Bible. Sin and forgiveness lays at the very heart of Christian doctrine. If you don't understand the depth of human depravity and the heinousness of sin in the eyes of an eternal holy God then you can't understand either the necessity of forgiveness nor the remarkable grace that does forgive. So let's see if I can unpack that just a little bit. People have a tendency to think that sin is merely the doing of things. When they think of sin, they think of sinful activity. But sin is much more than that. Sin is the very core of what we are as people. We are born sinful. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Ever since Adam's fall, all mankind has been born into a sinful estate. Paul argues that the evidence of that fact is the fact that people get old and die. Some people don't even get old before they die. Death is a direct result of sin. He argues that death is the wages of sin and that prior to the fall in Eden, there was no such thing as death. Death is a direct result. Sickness is a direct result. Even the weeds on the ground choking life out of fruitful plants is all a result of the sin of human beings and the sinful estate that we find ourselves in right now. It's not difficult to turn on the TV or look at the news or fire up the internet and and see sin in all its glory represented everywhere all the time. Whether that is sinful temptation, sexual temptation, whether that is human debauchery, drunkenness, wildness, rioting in the streets, whether that is terror, whether that is killing, murder, all of the things that the Bible lists as sin, you can find so easily now that it's not even difficult. You don't even have to search for it. It's just everywhere. Now, sin in and of itself, even the activity of sin, the outgrowth of sin, our sinful nature, is an offense to an eternally righteous and holy God. And we have to understand that. Because far too often people think that if they can just kind of clean up their act a little bit, 
that that will make them more righteous and more acceptable before God because they are now better than they once were. And being better than they once were, they think God is duly impressed. And perhaps God will receive them or accept them on the basis of the fact that they're now better than they once were. But if, in fact, your offenses, your sins, are a sin against an eternally righteous and holy God, then that is an eternal offense. And there's nothing you can do that can adequately pay for an eternal offense against an eternally righteous and holy God except suffer his judgment eternally. That's all that can happen. Getting a little bit better, improving a little bit, doesn't change the fact or fix the fact that you have already offended an eternally righteous and holy God. And people don't seem to think clearly about that fact. Far too often when uh, preachers, commentators talk about sin, I don't think they understand the depth of human depravity nor the extent of the offense against an eternally righteous, holy God. The offense is so dramatic that that same God created a place called the lake of fire. A place of eternal torment where we read in the book of Revelation that the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. That very fact stands as a testament to the righteousness and the holiness of God and the depth of the offense against him that sin actually is. Why would God create hell, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth? Why would he do all that except to demonstrate the offense against him? Yes, Wolf? Why are we in that type of system? You tell me. I think the answer, I say you tell me, but I I think I... I think I can tell you. It's God's will. It is God's will because God is in the enterprise. Never forget this. God is in the enterprise of revealing himself. You know, the proper name of God, Yahweh, throughout the Old Testament. You take the vowel sounds from Adonai and Adam to Yahweh, and that's where the Yehovah, Jehovah name comes from. Okay, well, that Jehovah name, that Yahweh name, is a revelatory name, which is why oftentimes you'll find it combined with other words in the Old Testament that describe various aspects of his nature and his character. So God is revealing himself over and over again. And part of his revelation of himself is that he is a a loving and a kind and a long-suffering and a gracious God. That's part of his character. That's part of his nature. And the only way to really demonstrate that is for him to be kind and gracious to people who can't possibly deserve it. Right? If you could deserve it to any degree, then he's not demonstrating his grace. He's paying you back what he owes you. The only way that grace can be demonstrated And the only way that his son can be raised up and get all the glory as the redeemer is for the people he redeems to be utterly incapable of doing it themselves. And at the same time, that same God in the process of revealing the depth and breadth of himself 
also demonstrates that he is absolutely righteous and unerringly, unbendingly holy. And therefore, he will judge his enemies and he will judge unrighteousness. And in every aspect, every sin across the board will be judged. And it will either be judged in the sinner or it was judged in his son. But either way, every sin deserves judgment. And that is the absolute necessity of Christ. Because if you don't have a substitute who will take on that judgment in your place, then you have to take on that judgment. Jesus is so much more than just an addendum to your life. He's so much more than just a way or an opportunity to add stuff to you. He is an absolute necessity to your eternity. Otherwise, you stand before God, naked and revealed, in all your depravity and all your sin, and he's going to judge you for every idle word. Or you're accepted in the beloved one. And, and that's, why, that's why I love Christianity, but it's also why I get so frustrated that I don't think people understand the necessity of Christianity. They don't understand the necessity of Christ, nor do they understand the preciousness of Christ, or they would not treat him the way they do. But we know that this is a sinful, depraved, fallen world. This is this present evil age, and therefore human beings by and large hate the one thing they ought to be completely in favor of. They ought to completely love Jesus. And instead, they absolutely hate him. No, I guess we'll talk about this for a moment. But I was talking to my son last night, and I said, you know, it, it is a remarkable thing that's happening in the world right now because he was asking about the, the things that are going on in Paris, the terrorist attacks in Paris. And I said, you know, it, it's an astounding thing and a brilliant bit of PR on behalf of the Islamic terrorists a phrase that our politicians aren't comfortable using. But the terrorists at this moment that are doing these things are Islamic, and there's just no way around that. When they're shouting Allah Akbar as they're killing people, that's a clue. But think about it for just a moment, because the press and our government and our leaders, immediately when these kinds of things happen, rush in front of the cameras and to the microphones in order to say, now, this is not indicative of Islam. Don't paint with too broad a brush. This isn't all Islam, and not all Muslims are bad. Well, I agree that not all Muslims are bad, but to say that Islam has nothing to do with this is fooling yourself. If the people who opened fire and blew themselves up Friday in Paris had shouted, in the name of Jesus Christ, before they did it, don't you think the press would be immediately denouncing Christianity? Because they still reach back to the Crusades. Our own president did it recently and tried to create a moral equivalency between the Crusades and what is happening right now in the terrorism in the world in order to say, now don't you Christians get too full of yourself because remember, you have the Crusades on your hands. Really, you had to reach back to the Crusades, which were actually a response 
to the Turkish Muslim hordes attacking Jerusalem? You had to go back to that in order to try to create an equivalency. Okay, so here's my point. And, and trust me, I do have one. Um, <laughs> the world hates Christianity and will pounce on any opportunity to denounce Christianity. But when any other religion openly, rebelliously sins in a public way that even results in mass murder, the world will rally around to say, oh, now don't blame the religion. It's a remarkable mindset. It is insanity. And until our leaders understand that what's going on is a spiritual problem, they're never going to find an answer for it. They're so busy looking for a political solution to a religious, spiritual problem. And that same spiritual darkness that causes this kind of terrorism in the world is the same spiritual darkness that will not allow the light of Christ to shine. And will do exactly as Paul said to the Romans, they will crush, hold down, suppress righteousness. And they'll celebrate unrighteousness. Not only will they be happy in their sin, but they'll rejoice in other people who sin with them. Because that is natural human nature. Now, the point I was aiming to make is that you can't fix your sin problem by just doing better later. That's legalism. That says, if you just stop doing all the stuff you used to do, you can reach a point of personal righteousness where God will accept you on the basis of the righteousness you have now attained. If you're expecting God to judge you on the basis of your own personal righteousness, he can't do anything but judge you because you're still guilty for all the things you did that offended him in the first place and you have eternally offended an eternally righteous and holy God and that still has to be paid for even if you did slightly better later. And what happens all too often with folk who live long enough is that you just simply reach an age where you can't do the things you used to do. Can I get a witness? It was easy, wasn't it? Well, that isn't more righteousness. That's just tiredness. That's just getting worn out. Well, I just I can't do that anymore. I'd like to. I'm, I'm just not going to. That's not righteousness. So, so the only way that anybody gets to stand before an eternally righteous holy God and not be judged is for God himself to forgive. But he doesn't just forgive and sweep everything under the carpet. He forgives on the basis of his righteousness being satisfied. His justice must be satisfied. And that is the whole point of Jesus going to Golgotha. It's the whole point of the cross. It's the whole point of the atoning work of Christ is that God then poured out his wrath for the sins of the people who he has chosen to redeem. God doesn't just look askance at the sins of all his people. He judged the sins of all his people, but he judged those sins in Christ. Those sins now having been paid for, 
the curse of those sins is removed. And then on top of that, the marvel of the new covenant, even the law that is the basis. Remember what we read last week? That sin is the breaking of God's law. Even the law that would condemn us is removed in the finished work of Christ. And so we can stand truly and genuinely in front of God, perfected forever by the finished work of Christ, without spot, without blemish. We are going to hear phrases like, well done, good and faithful servant, a phrase I can't even imagine God saying to any human being, given how naturally depraved and sinful we are. But then what's the end result of all that? Well, that gets back to Wolfgang's question. The end result of all that is God gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. He has created an atmosphere, a dynamic, a world system in which he and he alone gets all the glory. And no man gets to say, well, God did most of it. But I contributed my part. I added in my 2%. Nobody gets to say that. All anybody gets to say is salvation is of the Lord. All anybody gets to say is I confess that I'm a sinner in front of a righteous and a holy God. And all the things that had to happen in order for me to stand in front of God eternally and be accepted in his presence All those things were accomplished external to me. Now, the result of that will change you in a very positive way. Once you know that, once you understand that you've been forgiven eternally, once you understand the grace of God that has dug you from the pit, once you understand the redemptive work of Christ and the depth of the sacrifice... The the kind of sacrifice that caused him to agonize in the Garden of Gethsemane in a way that none of us have ever agonized. I have never prayed in such agony that my sweat became like great drops of blood. Have you? No, but he did because he understood what it was going to take to save his people. And he understood what the judgment and the wrath of God really was. And so, as you understand the depth of what he actually did and what he actually accomplished, and as that permeates your being and becomes the inspiration for how you live and what you do and the decisions you make, it will positively change you. But the positive changes are the result of the finished work of Christ. The positive changes do not increase your personal righteousness. God will never accept you on the basis of your personal righteousness, your personal works, your personal goodness. He will only accept you on the basis of Christ in you and you in Christ. And that, I say again, is why Jesus is so phenomenally important and precious. And why Christianity is the only respected religion in the history of the world that says this theologically, that you can be saved and stand before God, righteous and eternally perfected, on the basis of someone else's work and someone else's goodness. Every other religion in the history of mankind says, you have to just get better. You just have to work harder. 
You just have to establish your righteousness. Christianity is the only religion that says you can't do that. And if you're real with yourself, if you're honest with yourself, then you know your own brokenness to the extent that you recognize that you just can't be good enough. Have you ever had one of those uh, moments of awakening and recognition where you realize there's just no way that you're ever going to be good enough? That's a real important thing because left to yourself, you'll continue to delude yourself into thinking you're all right. But once the Spirit of God awakens you to the reality of His holiness and your depravity, you will realize you need a Savior. And that is unique to Christianity in the history of the world. Now, I said all that to say this theme of sin, restoration from sin, and forgiveness is thematic all the way through the Bible. Whether you're talking about God dealing with Israel in the Old Testament, you see the pattern over and over. Israel sins. Then God has to redeem them, has to restore them, forgive them. And then once they feel secure again, what do they do? Well, they go back to their old ways. Over and over. Over and over again. Until ultimately Christ comes on the scene, Christ is on the planet, and you finally see the, the form that casts that long shadow. You finally see a forgiveness that is a permanent forgiveness based on the fact that an eternal one actually offered a sacrifice sufficient in order to pay for the people who have offended a righteous, holy, eternal God. So here we see it again in the book of Matthew. You're going to see Matthew follow that same pattern as he quotes from Jesus, starting in verse 15 of Matthew 18. Last week we talked about, and if your brother sins. Key word there is brother, because Peter is also going to ask, how often shall my brother sin against me? And so this is language that has to do with the restoration, the redemption, the forgiveness of particular people. And so last week we read, starting in verse 15, And if your brother sins, go and restore him in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the assembly or the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I also in the midst. Now, having heard this instruction about restoring a sinning brother that starts with, if your brother sins, the implication being, if he sins against you, if he has offended you, if there's a difference between you and him, 
But ultimately, as I've said, all sin is an offense against a righteous and a holy God. And so then Peter, processing this information, says the very thing that you know Peter's going to say. Because we get that real consistent personality profile of Peter. So, of course, it is Peter who, having heard about the restoration of a sinning brother, asked the question, well, then, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter wants to know if there's a limit to it because Peter is thinking in those fleshly terms where he's saying, sure, I understand the whole thing where if I, if I see my brother in a sin or if he sins against me, I understand. I go to him privately. I try to restore him. If you won't hear me, I get another witness. Make sure it's not a false witness. The two of us go. We confront him about his sin. If he won't hear us, we take him in front of the congregation, in front of the assembly, and if he won't hear them, then we put him outside of the assembly for the purpose, as we said last week, for the purpose ultimately of restoring him to fellowship. Okay, I get all that, Jesus. Now, how often? How many times? Because I want to hold a grudge. If somebody sins against me, Okay, I'll forgive him. Once, maybe twice. But how often? Look, he even puts a number on it. How often? Up to seven times? He actually enumerates it. Like Jesus would go, five max. <laughs> Tops, five. Peter, seven? You're being generous. Good for you, Peter. I think Peter thought that was a generous number. How often should I forgive him? Look at the language. Up to seven times? And Jesus then says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, I don't think Jesus there was establishing a standard. I don't think he was saying 490 tops. That 492nd one, forget it. Because seven is a number of completion all the way through the Bible, and because of the way that seven is used in books like Daniel and books like Revelation, it is a number of wholeness and completion. And so I think the fact that he multiplied it by a multiple of 70, he's just saying on and on and on, just keep forgiving. I don't believe that he was saying 490 is the proper number. I think he was saying to Peter, it's so much more than you're willing to grant. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, in order to understand the rest of Jesus' response here, we have to remember who's talking, who he's talking to, and what the context is of his comments. Otherwise, you're going to get the impression that Jesus is saying, blood-bought, spirit-filled Christians, if they don't forgive, can end up under God's judgment. Remember that the people he is talking to here are still under the law of Moses. This goes back to what we taught in the Sermon on the Mount and then Jesus giving them the disciples' prayer. One of the petitions in what is classically called the Lord's Prayer is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I don't know that I want to be forgiven that way. I've been known to hold a grudge. I'm hoping God doesn't hold any grudges. Jesus, in describing that model prayer, said, you're going to be forgiven the way you forgive. 
Okay, that's a standard that fits really well under the law of Moses. But the standard under the new covenant is we have been forgiven utterly and completely and eternally. And we have been established in the finished work of Christ. So just remember the historic context for the story that Jesus is about to lay out. Let's read it. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents, which is about $10,000 in silver content in terms of buying power. That's a lot. So it's a big debt. It's a heavy debt. What? Are you just making up numbers now on your own? Is that what it says? What does it say? Like uh, $3,800,000,000. Is that the number other folks have? Sixty million, you've got three trillion. Apparently, it's inflation. Do I hear any other bids? Sold to the man in the red shirt. When he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had, and repayment was to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. Okay, so there's the first part of the story. That's the setup, which is that there's a servant, there's a slave who owes a tremendously large debt, far more than he could ever pay. And therefore, he was going to be sold, his wife was going to be sold, his children were going to be sold, and even then, the chances of selling them off, repaying that debt, very, very slim. And so then he falls down before his master and he begs him and says, have patience with me and I will repay everything. He's a slave. He's a servant. What are the likelihood? What is the likelihood that he's going to be able to assemble that kind of money and repay it? And then his master does something absolutely unexpected. He forgives the debt completely. An act of grace. The slave doesn't deserve it. The slave is the one who ran up the debt but his master forgives it. So then the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But then the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, this will be fun. What do your translations say for a hundred denarii? A day's wages. A day's wages. Anything else? Okay, good. We're settled on a day's wage. He seized that other servant and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. It is important that that exact same line is quoted. The same thing that he said to his master is now being said to him. But he was unwilling, however, 
but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. This is the debtor's prison. And so he took him, as we're going to see uh, Jesus use the phrase, to the torturers. It's a form of punishment. He was unwilling. And he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and they reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then, summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? Okay, that's the point of the story. If you have received forgiveness, then you should be forgiving. And I think that's a point that applies to us here in the church today as much as it applied to the people Jesus was speaking to. Jesus established a principle here. You should forgive the way you've been forgiven. And in the finished work of Christ, how much have you been forgiven? Completely, across the board, all your sin. Remember how I began this morning? All that sin that you couldn't pay for. Sins against an eternally righteous, holy God. You owe him an eternal debt, a debt that must be satisfied. And he is going to judge in righteousness, in holiness, and extract a suitable payment for your sin. And he's either going to extract it from you or he's going to extract it from a substitute. And having extracted your debt through his son, he has now forgiven you across the board for everything, for how you are, for how you act, for the essential characteristic of your being, that you are a sinner, that you are depraved in heart and mind, that you do act on your depravity. All of that, all your pre-redemption days, all your post-redemption days, every wicked thought, every idle word, all of it completely forgiven. So forgiven that David would write that God has cast it as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he has cast your sins away from you. Even cast it behind his back. Just gone. Doesn't even bring it up. Which is a concept I like very, very much. Because when I stand before God, there are a whole lot of things I don't want to talk about. And won't have to. Because instead, he's going to look at me and see his son. I heard a preacher years ago who said that God wears Jesus-colored glasses. (laughs) And when he looks at his people, he doesn't see them. He sees his son. And he's pleased with his son. That's how much you've been forgiven. Okay, so now your brother sins against you. You are not eternally righteous and holy. You are not eternally good. And so a sin against you is negligible compared to a sin against an eternally righteous, holy God. Get the point? So then how much should you forgive? Because after all, It's a sinner offending another sinner. It's not a sinner offending an eternally righteous holy God. It's a sinner offending you, for goodness sake. 
but in our sinfulness in our depravity in our ego in our self-righteousness we actually think that a sin against us is tantamount to a sin against God and we will hold a grudge and we will make them pay and we'll make them pay until we're satisfied with the payment and even then we might say we forgive oh but we don't forget that's why it's important to remember that God has cast all those sins behind his back. They don't even come up again. He has forgotten them into the sea of God's forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. And that is how we are supposed to forgive. Now, if you can't find it within yourself to forgive somebody, then you have to reach outside yourself and find your inspiration for forgiveness external to yourself just like your righteousness comes externally to you just like your redemption the forgiving work all of that is external to you because there's no goodness no righteousness in you and the ability to forgive just isn't in you naturally therefore the inspiration to forgive has to be external to you and that's what Jesus is talking about remember how much you've been forgiven use that as your inspiration to forgive yes Alan well, I don't want to go down this, this rabbit trail, but I think the language is very specific. This is brothers. This is always brothers. Because Jesus at this point is talking about unity, creating unity within the assembly. Make sense? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, I understand your question. Yeah, yeah, yes. I was saying, how do you approach the person? Right. Who, are you now tr approaching them as a, from the evangelistic right. standpoint? Because they're that's the answer, yes. And I think that's where we ended up last week. Okay. Was if somebody is put out of the assembly and you're treating them like a publican or a Gentile or a sinner, then what is your approach to them? It's, evangelism. it's to evangelize them, it's to bring them to Christ. It's to restore them back into the fold, right? But then if they do it again uh, 490 times... I think we're talking about a different thing here. Okay. Because, yes, because remember the order of events that Jesus has laid out here. If a brother's caught in a sin, go restore him. If he is restored, you're forgiving him, right? Mm -hmm. How often should you restore and forgive? Just keep doing it. Why? Because he's a brother, Right? If he won't hear you, he doesn't say forgive him anyway. If he won't hear the church, he says put him out. Put him outside the camp, put him outside the assembly, and treat him like an outsider. That's a different dynamic. Okay, I'll, I'll do it this way. So Todd and I are at odds with each other. I don't know what over. I have no idea what happened here. But... Todd has offended me. I'm really offended at you, Todd. Don't know why yet, but I will think of something. <laughs> at this moment, Micah is so happy. Because <laughs> he's no longer the target, because I got my chair. And so it's just it's like all good now with, with him and I. Yeah. And I have forgiven him completely. Restoration of fellowship. 
the brotherhood is good here between him and I, but he and I are ganging up on you because we're just tired of you. So, so, so let's say I'm offended with Todd. Well, then the instruction is I go to Todd and I talk to Todd. Let's say Todd doesn't hear me, and so I go back with Tom because Tom is aware of whatever it is Todd did. What did Todd do? Do we know? It was bad. Okay, good. That's all we need to know. Okay, so, so let's say we then go to Todd and we talk to Todd, and Todd says, you're right, and I repent, and I'm sorry, and I didn't mean it, and I, okay, great. Okay, that's the moment Jesus is talking about here, because now he's restored. He has said he is sorry, so now I'm going to forgive him. We're going to forgive him. Okay, fine. Fellowship restored. Peter says, how many times do I do that? Because let's say next week... Todd offends me again. Now, my human nature at some point is going to be, you know, I've about had it with Todd. Because he just keeps doing this. And according to Tom, it's bad. So Peter's question is, how often do I keep going back to him and saying, Todd? And then he says, you're right, I'm sorry. And I go, okay, I forgive you. But the reason that I keep forgiving him even the reason that I keep going to him is because he's a brother. Now, if at any point Todd says, forget it, I don't want to know this anymore, and we bring it in front of the assembly, and he still won't repent, and then, well, then he's out. You can't be part of this fellowship. If you stay in this fellowship, it's going to be like a cancer. It's going to be a problem for the whole group. You're just going to bring other people down with you. You have to stay outside. But is it possible for a brother to have that that stiff-necked attitude of, well, I, you know, and... Well, I think that's why last week we asked, you know, is that a sheep or a goat? Yeah. Now, if he goes out and stays out and remains in his rebellion, then, he's a goat. then I think the evidence is going to be, yeah, that, that, that there's goat tendencies happening there. So what do I do with the goaty version of Todd once we've put him out? <laughs> We do not barbecue him. No, that's a whole different thing. Okay, so now, so now Goat Todd is on the outside. Are you enjoying this? Okay, good. How do I then approach Todd? I don't go start with forgiveness like a brother. I'm going to start with evangelizing him. I'm going to start with talking about Jesus because his problem is more than just an offense against me. His problem now is Jesus. Yeah, he's offending God. He's not following the word of God. He's not in fellowship with the church anymore. His problem is he needs Jesus. Now, if he accepts that and believes that and is restored to fellowship, that's a brother and I'm going to forgive him. But I... I think all of that is in these two stories Jesus told. There's the, what do you do when a brother repents? Well, you forgive him. What do you do if he doesn't? You put him out. Both of those are true. But the forgiving part is always brothers. And if it's a brother who sins, that's why you go to him and talk to him. That's because it's a brother, after all. No, because the goal, the goal always, as I said last week of church discipline, is always the restoration of the person. If I didn't love him, if I didn't care about him, I'd let him go. Go. Be wild. Be crazy. Go to hell. 
that was not directed at you. Okay, I just want to be real clear there. Okay. Um, it, is, it is out of love that I go to him and say, you're in sin. You're in rebellion and we need to talk about this. My motivation is love and restoration. My goal is not to get him to stiffen his neck so I can throw him out. Right? So all of this we agree to. All of this applies to us right now. But then Jesus says a couple more things because he's talking to people who are under the law. And we have to be careful how we treat these next couple of verses. Verse 33 says, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger. Okay, now if we're going to apply this to the Christian-Savior relationship, then we're going to end up saying that after you've been forgiven... If you don't forgive, your master can then rescind his forgiveness and judge you. And that runs counter to what we know of new covenant doctrine. But remember, he's talking to people here who were Israelites who were still under the law, and the law of Moses does instruct this kind of forgiveness. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. That's why I began this morning by saying, you can't pay it. You don't have the capacity to pay the debt you owe an eternally righteous holy God. The only way to make this statement work is to understand that it is an old covenant statement. That he is saying to people who are under the law of Moses, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the way that standard worked. The end result of that standard was to demonstrate that nobody could do it so that you would understand the necessity of a savior and the new covenant. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Okay, that is a Moses standard. Jesus is holding the Moses standard because Jesus never denounced the Moses standard. Fulfilled it? Yes. Satisfied it? Yes. But he never said, not a good rule, not a good standard. In fact, he continued to hold Israelites who were under that standard to that standard until he went to the cross and redeemed them to show them their inability to do it. Yes, sir? It makes sense in how you're saying it. I just hermeneutically, how, how can we be consistent if we're saying this about this, but in the same context, we're applying forgiveness to ourselves, this 70 times 7, we're saying this part, mm-hmm. but it's in the same context of the same people, and we're not applying, it seems a little bit <clears throat> cheesy. Yeah. I think it's because as you go on into the New Testament and read the New Testament writers, the concept of sin and forgiveness, like I said, sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness, runs all the way through the Bible into the New Testament and the New Covenant. So the concept of God has been gracious to you, therefore be gracious to other people, is a New Covenant concept. And so we can read it here 
when Jesus said it to Israel, he established a concept, and we can say, yeah, we agree with that concept because the New Testament, New Covenant writers carry that concept over. What Paul never says is, my heavenly Father will treat you the way that this uh, master did under the New Covenant. And this, again, is why the Old Covenant, New Covenant distinctives are just so, so vitally important and why you have to read the Bible in its historic context or get confused. Because I have heard preachers preach verse 34 and verse 35 against the church and thunder down on them. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. But what is the basis of our forgiveness? The basis of our forgiveness is the finished work of Christ. And if God was to hold you to the standard that he would only forgive you, or worse, that he could forgive you and then rescind it based on your behavior, well, then you've really got a problematic theology, which, of course, the legalists love, but I don't think it comports with what the New Testament writers say about new covenant forgiveness. Make sense? Okay. And when we began the book of Matthew 18 years ago, whenever it was, when we began the book of Matthew, one of the things that I absolutely stressed was we have to remember that this is all taking place under the old covenant or else we'll get confused. The focus is still Jesus talking to a Jewish audience about the law of Moses and about the temple and about the service. and This is all old covenant stuff still. All right, so as if that wasn't already controversial enough and difficult enough to, to work our way through, although I think we ended up in a pretty good place. Are we all okay? Yeah. Despite all that, the next topic is divorce. So if you don't think it got <laughs> thick and heavy already, now we're going to go even thicker and heavier. We're just going to touch on it this morning, and then I'll let you go, and we'll dig deeper into it next week. But let me at least give you some introductory comments, and I would like to get to at least Jesus' first response because it is so important to the contemporary discussion going on in the church right now about what constitutes marriage. So I want to look at it from that perspective this morning, and then next week we'll get into the whole conversation. Chapter 19, verse 1, And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words... He departed from Galilee, and he came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Over the course of the last couple of chapters, you've noticed that Jesus started out way up by Tyre and Sidon, way up at the uppermost coasts of, of what was the northern tribe area. And he's worked his way down through Canaan, and now he has finally reached the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. He's on his way toward Jerusalem, ultimately. And so, in his travels, the great multitudes have followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, and they were, here's the important part, they were testing him. They were not asking genuine, sincere questions. They weren't coming looking for knowledge. They weren't coming to say, what do you think? And that'll clear up the subject for us. They wanted very badly to trap him to see if they could get him to say something that was against the law or against Moses so that they could hold him guilty 
of either breaking the law of God or being contrary to the law of God. And they have done this repeatedly in their interactions with him. So they're testing him and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? This was a standard within Israel at that point. They were allowed to divorce their wives for just about any cause. Now you have to understand the bill of divorcement concept because the bill of divorcement was almost like granting the woman good status societally because if you divorced your wife, the assumption is that you had a cause. And the primary cause would be for some marital unfaithfulness, for some kind of adultery. But the punishment for adultery under the law was not divorce. It was stoning. If you were putting her out of your house for some reason other than marital infidelity, you would give her a writ of divorce, which basically allowed that she was not an adulteress. She had been put out of the house. Her husband didn't want her anymore. But a woman who had a writ of divorce not only wouldn't be stoned, but she could marry again within Israelite society. So the bill of divorcement was not an entirely bad thing. It also cleared her name. So he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? We'll read verse 5 in a minute. There is a movement going on in the evangelical world, and I'm using the word evangelical very loosely at this moment. Mm -hmm. But there is a movement going on within the evangelical world that is accepting the idea that marriage can be other than a man and a woman, that it can be two men or that it can be two women. And that concept is gaining steam within the evangelical church as the church continues to compromise in order to get along with the larger society. I don't really care that the world has decided to legalize something that God calls an abomination. The world is the world. I expect sinners to act like sinners. I expect the world to do sinful things that are completely against God's righteous standard. I expect that. The offense is when the church follows along in order to get along with the world. Well, one of the ways that the pro-gay marriage crowd argues, the pro-gay marriage quasi-evangelical crowd, one of the ways that they argue is they say, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. And, you know, Jesus was all about love and acceptance And since Jesus was about love and acceptance, they then make the leap to Jesus wouldn't mind gay marriage as long as it's two people who love each other because, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. As long as they love each other, well, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about it. Well, he did. He actually did say something about it. He defined marriage. And he defined marriage according to to the law of Moses, and is going to quote from the law of Moses in establishing what marriage is. He reaches all the way back to Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden. He reaches back to the very beginning and mentions that this is the way God created it from the start, male and female. So the truth is, Jesus actually 
did respond to the gay marriage argument, and his response is no. But people don't want to admit that. Because listen to what he said. Have you not read? First important thing. They have asked him a question. Is it lawful? It's according to the Moses law. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? That's their point. Moses has allowed this. He's even going to admit that Moses allowed it. But Moses allowed it, according to Jesus, because your hearts are hard. The implication being, you men are so hard on your wives that God allowed through Moses that every once in a while you could put your wife away and it was an act of mercy because of your hard-heartedness. So he's going to admit, yeah, Moses said that you could divorce your wife for every cause. And then he's going to say, but that's not the God standard. And by the way, it's not Jesus' standard which he's also going to spell out. And he answered and he said, have you not read? In other words, what does the Bible already say? What does the text already tell you? This should answer your question. He's saying the answer to your question is already in the text. Just go read the text. And these, after all, are the Pharisees. They should know the answer. He answered and said, have you not read that he who created them... Notice that Jesus was a creationist. He did not say, well, eventually, after the one-celled being came up out of the primordial ooze, eventually as those cells split, they became male and female. And then they found they were attracted to each other. No, he said, God created this. This is a creation ordinance. God did this on purpose this way. He created the male and female. Why? Because male and female are compatible physically in a way that a male and a male are not and that a female and a female are not. And so he says, here's his comment on marriage, for this cause... A man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis 2.24. Haven't you read this? Don't you know this? I really like the fact that when Jesus makes an argument, he quotes scripture. I mean, that's the way that we ought to be arguing. What does it say? Have you not read it? Don't you know what it already says? Okay, that's the answer to your question. The answer is whatever the Bible says. So God created the male and female, and for this cause, this marriage, this partnership between a male and a female, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is no way to satisfy the one flesh dynamic with two men anatomically or two women anatomically. Men and women were made by God, created by God, a particular way that creates a compatibility between them that allows the one flesh union. Consequently, here's Jesus' concluding statement, consequently, they're no longer two, but are one flesh, 
and what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here's his answer. Is it okay to divorce your wife for any cause at all? His answer is no, because from the very beginning, God created the male and female on purpose, creating that compatibility between them that allows them to join together in a way that they are one flesh, and since they are one flesh in God's eyes, don't let anybody separate them. The answer is no. Can I divorce my wife for any reason I want? No. So they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Keep your finger there. Turn to Deuteronomy 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24. This is what they're referring to. Deuteronomy 24, we're going to start right at the top of the chapter. Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from the house, and she leaves the house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife. Okay, stop for a moment because we're going to read the rest of this. He is talking about a particular situation. He's going to describe the situation in a moment. The situation is a man divorces his wife. She goes out and marries somebody else, but then her second husband divorces her or dies. Well, then what? Can the first husband take her back? But notice that in that context, in that story, there is the phrase, what if there's a man who marries a wife? And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because there's something in her, some indecency in her. So he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out from the house. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. He just finds something in her that he's not pleased with, and he puts a certificate of divorce in her hand and sends her out. That's what Moses allows. So she leaves the house. She goes to become another man's wife. And if the latter husband, the second husband or the third, turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first one, who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has become defiled. What does that mean, that she has become defiled? Well, this is preparing us for what Jesus is going to say about adultery and about a man divorcing his wife if he divorces her for any cause at all other than adultery he makes her an adulteress and so here in the law of Moses that adultery thing permeates the rule that says if a woman is divorced and goes and marries another man she can't come marry her first husband again because she's been defiled in the fact that she has slept with another man. And so then she can't come back. Then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. 
and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And then when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He's free at home for one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And the women all said, Amen. Amen. Yeah, exactly. For the first year after you're married, just make your wife happy. That's a pretty good rule. Okay, so that is all the background for what we're about to get into in Jesus' comments concerning divorce. And it'll take us more time to dig through all of it. I just wanted to uh, at least help us recognize that Jesus did comment on the gay marriage question. And he answered it in a couple of different ways, starting with, from the beginning, male and female. And from the beginning, they were made male and female in order to create a compatibility that allows for the one flesh dynamic, which simply cannot be accomplished between two men or two women. Therefore, even if the larger society says that two men are married, they're not married in the eyes of God. Even if society says it's okay for two women to get quote-unquote married in some legal way and have some license that is given to them by the state, they are still not married in the eyes of God because marriage is defined by God. And it's defined as one man and one woman who are able to become one flesh in the eyes of God. And once they have become one flesh in the eyes of God, well then what God has put together, no one is supposed to take apart. Now he is going to say, we're going to look at all this next week, he will say except for the cause of adultery, but that has a larger context that has to do with what we just read from Deuteronomy. Yes, ma'am. How do the quote-unquote evangelicals that want to kind of move into the gay marriage is okay thing, how do they answer that argument? Oh, they don't even touch the argument. Are you kidding? Oh, no, no, no. No, their arguments are all emotion-based. Linda, who are you, you bigot, who are you to deny two people who really love each other the opportunity to share the same happiness you have with Jim? You just go to the ad hominem attack. Yeah, you go right to the emotional argument. Right to the emotional argument. I mean, after all, would you say that somebody who... It's not their fault they were born this way and they yearn for the affection of somebody of their own sex. Are you going to deny them the same rights of marriage that you have just because you happen to be born heterosexual? I want it to be called marriage. Yeah, that's their argument. Yeah, I want it to be marriage no matter what you call it. Yes, yeah. There actually is, as I understand it, uh, some form of an argument, and I know we've discussed this previously, where they had changed the terminology from homosexuality to, what is it? It's the same love. They want to get the word sex out of it. Right. Yeah, by taking the homosexual, the reason that that word has been replaced by words like gay or uh, same-sex attraction, the reason that they've done that is because the emotional argument of two people loving each other plays better than getting people to think about the sexual aspect of it. And so by removing the sexual aspect of it and just making it an emotion-based attraction, then people are more accepting of it. Well, the next step, too, is just to remove gender altogether. Well, that's happening. That's happening. Right. Right. There are places now that have rewritten their marriage licenses that don't say husband and wife. 
It says spouse and spouse. And on college campuses, they're right. away from she and right. he and all that Absolutely. Stuff. Get rid of all the gender stuff. <laughs> right. Okay. So really, what is that, Linda? The desire to get rid of gender specification, what is that? Because we just read Jesus himself quoting Genesis, validating the Genesis account of creation that God created them, male and female, and then sinful humans said, we're going to erase that distinction. So ultimately, what is that? It's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against God's order. It's rebellion against God's creation. It is the raising up and superiority of the will of man over the ordinances of God. So I began this morning by saying, whether we're talking about what's going on in Paris or whether we're talking about what's going on with ISIS, whether we're talking about you know, anything and the temptations that are all around us all the time, the hypersexualizing of children that's going on in our society, all of that stems from the same place. It all is a spiritual problem. It's not a societal problem. It's not going to be cured politically or societally. It is a sin problem. And it is only going to be cured when the Prince of Peace returns to establish peace for his people, but also doles out appropriate punishment against all those who are in rebellion against him. And both sides of that the forgiveness and the judgment will redound to God's glory. And that kind of takes us back to Wolfgang's original question. In the end, it's all about God. Well, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, so it is a spiritual issue. It is a spiritual problem. Yeah. Yes, sir? I want to go back to chapter 18 for a second. Um, in your view, Jim, or in the salvation by grace theology, what role, do, if any, does confession play? And in other words, to put it sure. a little different way, I, I get atonement, and that's like eternal. Right. But I, I would view confession as being temporal. And of course, the Catholics, you know, confess as often as you can. Right. But even in mainstream Protestant churches, I mean, the church I grew up in, Presbyterian, you know, we have a little part of the service where he says, the minister says some nice words, we confess publicly, and then he gives us all of 20 seconds to confess privately, and I usually confess everything within 10 or 12 seconds. The rest of the people, the rest of the people need the full 20. They need the full 20. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then he announces that we are forgiven. So, yeah. so it's, it's not just Catholic, it's also right. mainstream Protestant. Yeah. Where, where is it in salvation by grace? Yeah, they kind of uh, take that phrase that John writes. He says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And they take that and say, see, the forgiveness and the cleansing is a direct result of the confession. So you have to confess your sin. And usually what they mean is think of everything you can think of, like you said, whether it takes 12 or 20 seconds. Just confess it all. Uh, Whereas I think what John is saying is it's the admission that we are sinful as opposed to listing every little sin we can possibly think of. Which is the very next verse. He says, if we say we have no sin. If we say we have no sin. It's not a confession like, okay, confess this, I confess that. Right. It's an acknowledgement, I am a sinner. I'm confessing, yeah. agreeing with God. You're just agreeing with God. Right. Yeah, agreeing really, with God. The whole yeah. gist of it is I've fallen short. 
of your standard to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbors, myself. Everything else falls under that. Yes. You know, and, and I do think it's important to confess that and agree with sure. that. Sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't follow the law. So where confession fits under the new covenant, I haven't forgotten your original question, is that that is part and parcel of the Holy Spirit's work within us. He will convict us of our sin and then call us to repentance. And you won't turn from your sinful self to the things of God without confessing that you need the Savior. But it is not a Roman Catholic constant going to God through a priest and saying, I did this, I did this, I did two of these. This one got good to me, I did it four. This, you know, it's, it's not that. And then he pronounces your forgiveness. It's that you are confessing before God that you are a sinner. And by the spirit of God, you are turning from your worldly way, your worldly life, and turning to the things of God. And that is exactly, as Jeff just said, the dynamic that John was writing about. You're either going to confess your sin and he will forgive you for your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, but if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And so that's the place where confession fits. It's confession before God of your need of him and your need of his son as a savior. You can confess to me all you want, but I can't help you, I can't fix you, I can't change you, but I can guide you to the one who can and he's the one you have to get honest with. Because you can fool a priest. You can fool other churchgoers. But you got to go get honest with him. Make sense? Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. It's like the first, it's, it's one of the dynamics uh, of repentance. It is. It is. You have to be aware of it to start the process of right. deciding to go the other way. Right. You won't repent until you admit that you're sinful. Until you realize you have a problem, that's, that is the problem, is that most people don't think they have a problem. And if you don't think you have a problem, you won't go seek a solution to your problem. But Jesus said that. Well men don't seek a physician. If you feel fine, you don't go look for a doctor. First you have to be convicted of your need, then you'll go look for a savior. Was there another hand? Did I see something? I covered it. Okay. Anything else that was a good morning? Lots of good discussion. Have I left anybody befuddled, confused at all? Are we pretty clear? We're good. Todd, I forgive you. (laughs) I just want you to know. That's one. Yeah. Yeah, you got like 489 left. But say goodbye to the digital congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the word and study God's sovereign grace.